All right, so good evening and thank you for having me and thanks to Sophie for hosting the series of lectures. Um, so what is metaphor? It comes from the Latin and the Greek, um, meaning to bear or to carry across or over. So we have this idea of um, moving something from one domain to the other, but that doesn't tell us very much, right? At least since Aristotle, philosophers have attempted to answer the question, what is metaphor? In order to address this concern completely, we would want to first notice some of our assumptions and attitudes about the purpose of metaphor within language. And my colleague James Grant in the philosophy department has done a series of lectures on the philosophy of language around metaphor. So if you're interested in that, that's a good place to start. To this day, there is no agreement within philosophy of language as to what metaphor is, partially because metaphors are stubborn and resist definition, and partially because there are so many varieties of metaphorical thinking. There's extended metaphor, dead metaphor, mixed metaphor, conceptual, etc., all of which generally get lumped together for the theoretical convenience. Um, however, there are many popular misconceptions about what metaphor might be in sort of an ultimate theoretical sense. And I wanted to address some of these misconceptions, and you might be surprised to hear them referred to as misconceptions. But the first misconception that I often hear is that metaphor is what we say when we actually mean something different. So, for instance, you hear someone say, well, the statement love is a rose is a metaphor for the fact that being in love is a sweet and beautiful experience. So this takes the form X is a metaphor for Y. And um, Donald David Davidson has a very good essay addressing this point called What Metaphors Mean. And essentially there are two things that you can say to this. You can say, well, for one thing, if I say love is a sweet and beautiful experience, I haven't really gotten rid of the metaphor, right? There's something untranslatable about the original expression. And the second thing that you can say is, um, if I had meant to say love is a sweet and beautiful experience, I probably should have said that, right? Why did I say love is a rose? The second misconception is that metaphor is not part of normal cognition. So you hear, well, it's magical, it's primitive, it's a result of neural confusion. I sometimes hear this in the sciences as well. Um, and I think this bias can be traced to Fraser and Freud and Durkheim in a certain tradition within the social sciences. And the third misconception is that metaphor is what we say when we don't really mean what we say. And I think this is very common and this is the misconception that I want to address tonight. Um, so we hear people say, well, I was just speaking metaphorically or someone might speak of mere metaphor, right? And the assumption here is that um, there's a contrast between metaphor and sort of concrete reasoning or superior abstract reasoning, something like this. So I intend to convince you that these biases are impoverished. They're not always wrong. These attitudes are at least sometimes wrong and very often misleading when it comes to the significance of metaphor to thinking. Here's some examples of this, these misconceptions playing out in discourse. The first quote is from David Brooks. He wrote an article for the New York Times. He says, metaphors help compensate for our natural weaknesses. Most of us are not very good at thinking about abstractions or spiritual states, so we rely on concrete or spatial metaphors to imperfectly do the job. So here you can see that um, Brooks is kind of contrasting concrete reasoning as sort of the superior form of thinking that we're all aiming at to metaphorical thinking, which is sort of watered down. Um, the second example comes from John Locke in his essay concerning human understanding, um, the great empiricist. He says, 
Sometimes men who sincerely aim at truth are imposed upon by such loose and as they are called rhetorical discourses, their fancies being struck with some lively metaphorical representations, they neglect to observe or do not easily perceive what are the true ideas upon which the inference depends. So this is, a, again, an example of the third misconception. So the question I started to ask during research changed as I increasingly confronted conceptions of metaphors informed by a somewhat artificial, though perhaps philosophically necessary, contrast between clear and rigid truth designation on the one hand and fictive flourishes of hyperbolic and largely meaningless rhetoric on the other. Theory sometimes fails in particular to address original or highly subtle metaphors and defaults to cliche examples or dead metaphors because these are easier to reconcile to any given system. It is simpler, for example, to address the metaphor, Juliet is the sun or time is money, than it is to come to terms with the metaphor, his acerbic speech sharply clawed its way out from the tunnel of his private pain into the clear light of social acceptance, for example. For an individual who's experiencing the creation of a metaphor or attending to new associative complexes, metaphorical processing can seem to be a very different affair than it appears to the theorist tasked with explaining metaphor retrospectively. So I sort of stopped asking the question, what is metaphor, which is the first question of metaphysics. I started asking the question, what is it like, which is the second question of metaphysics. This is a quote from Virginia Woolf, words do not live in dictionaries, they live in the mind. So how does metaphor work as a cognitive process? What's it like for the person who's creating a metaphor? This led to broader re research. The question posed was, what other cases of transference between unlike domains do we know exist in human cognition and perception? The emerging neurological research on synesthesia, some of which is being done here at the university, has much to offer the humanities by way of possible theoretical explanation. So synesthesia, what is it? it comes from the Greek, which means basically um, sensed or experienced together. Synesthesia is the involuntary, immediate, fixed pairing or joining of two unlike domains which are not normally experienced together. A pronounced synesthete might experience one category, such as numbers, as joined to particular colors in a definite and predictable way. For example, a synesthete might find that she cannot help but associate the number two with the color orange. There are degrees of strength in synesthetic experience. Some synesthetes are projectors, which means they um, experience the color orange sort of projected right out in front of them. And others are associators who perceive sensation sort of in the mind's eye. For many years and until the development of fMRI, synesthesia could only be diagnosed by self-report and was therefore treated as a pathology. It was commonly reported in creative people, writers, artists, and musicians. I have a short list here, but it's by no means complete. Um, Leonard Bernstein, Stevie Wonder, Nabokov, Hockney, List, Edward Munch, Tilda Swindon, Mozart, Degas, Hendrix, Pythagoras, Duke Ellington, Tori Amos. So these are all sort of self-reported synesthetes. Synesthesia has only been studied recently as a real phenomenon. Once it was determined that these experiences were indeed fixed, predictable, and distinct. There are many questions that scientists have yet to answer concerning synesthetic experience. So I've, list, I've listed just a few types of synesthesia here. There's over 60 types reported. Um, just to give you an example of lexical degustatory, which means um, word to taste, there's a synesthete who reports that the name Derek tastes like earwax. So every time he hears the word Derek, he has an immediate 
association of the taste of earwax, which is probably very uncomfortable for him. The self-reports of pronounced synesthetes are absolutely fascinating, and we could devote a whole lecture to these reports. Here's an example from a synesthete who experiences personified numbers. She writes, T's are generally crabbed, ungenerous creatures. U is a soulless sort of thing. Four is honest, but three I cannot trust. Nine is dark, a gentleman, tall and graceful, but politic under his suavity. Likewise, I is a bit of a warrior at times, although easygoing. J is male, appearing jocular, but with strength of character. K is female, quiet, responsible, and so on. These descriptions might strike us as somewhat surreal, but researchers have been quick to point out that latent synesthesia, or neural crosstalk more generally, is prevalent in much of the population. That is, there are ways in which some of our common experiences are analogous to the experiences described by the pronounced synesthete. Um, so examples of this would be music that makes you feel goosebumps, or you might see something salty and instantly salivate, or you smell something and instantly remember an experience from the past. Researcher Richard Seidewick has argued that it's not a matter of crosstalk existing in all of our brains, it does, but rather the degree of crosstalk evidenced. And there's a little parlor trick that demonstrates this. Some of you probably have seen this before, it's quite popular. Um, it's called the Kohler effect after Wolfgang Kohler, 1929. Essentially, if, if you have two shapes, one is sort of a spiked shape and one is a rounded shape, and I tell you, okay, these shapes have names, one of them is called Kiki, and the other one is called Bauba. Just to see a show of hands, how many of you think that the sharp shape is called Kiki? Okay, so it's basically universally true that if you ask people this across languages, they'll say, well, the sharp shape goes with the sharp sound. And we don't really know why we would associate these things. It's just sort of a universal fact. So another way in which we can come to terms with the prevalence of synesthesia in the population at large is to consider the fact that fMRI appears to show that babies are synesthetic in roughly their first four months. So we don't really know what this is like because we don't have any self-reports from babies, obviously. So researchers are trying to sort of make sense of this data. They look at the brain and they see a high degree of crosstalk in the first four months of life. Um, so are they tasting shapes? Are they smelling sounds? We don't really know. Babies also process more perceptual information in their young life, and over time, neural pruning fixes their useful associations and eliminates peripheral associations. So um, some examples of this, there's a researcher that tried to explain what it would be like if we could see the amount of light that a baby sees um, during their first four months of life. He described it as being um, akin to if we were to go to a Mediterranean village um, where there's a lot of white stucco buildings and maybe it's high noon and we're inside, we have dark glasses on, and then we suddenly go outside and take the glasses off. That's about the amount of light that a baby is experiencing. Or um, similarly with hearing, if you or I hear a door slam, we hear one iteration of that sound, whereas the baby is sort of processing more than one um, wavelength of sound. So they might hear the door slam more than one time. So they're actually, they're actually processing more information than we are. So it makes sense that our brains would eliminate less important information over time. Um, an example of this is there's a synesthete named Solomon Shervevsky. He's a Russian journalist, and he has this amazing eidetic memory. He's quite famous um, within this field, and he was able to memorize large quantities of information, and they discovered he had several forms of synesthesia, not just one. 
but he had trouble memorizing information whose intended meaning differed than its, from its literal one. And he also had trouble recognizing faces, um, which he saw as very changeable. He also occasionally had problems reading because the written words evoked distracting sensations. So here's his self-report. He says, one time I went to buy some ice cream. I walked over to the vendor and asked her what kind of ice cream she had. Fruit ice cream, she said. But she answered in such a tone that a whole pile of coals of black cinders came bursting out of her mouth and I couldn't bring myself to buy any ice cream after she had answered in, in that way. So it's common that, that synesthetes with more than one form of synesthesia find life to be very overwhelming. They have um, high, high degrees of depression because they're just processing so much information. So researchers consider the stage of linguistic development and its subsequent neural pruning to be particularly significant to studies of synesthesia and suggest that perhaps one of the explanations for pronounced synesthesia might involve the integration of peripheral associations at the time of ostensive definition. So um, when you're learning the language for the first time or even just a letter, someone saying A, A, A through repetition, perhaps if you're synesthetic, you've integrated um, a color at that time, so say orange, and your brain has just latched onto that and, and said, well, that's important too. So that's one theory. So what is striking about this from a philosophical perspective is that language develops or molds the world into fixed associations to some degree in terms of perception. So what does this have to do with metaphor? The foremost authorities on synesthesia, Ramachandra and Seidewick and others, have suggested that metaphors might express latent or sublated synesthesia, or at the very least, there's a strong connection between synesthetic cognition and metaphorical processing. This remains a hypothesis, but it rests on some very compelling observations. Firstly, the most common forms of pronounced synesthesia are forms that connect language or mathematical representations to sensation. Secondly, the angular gyrus is active in synesthetic processing. It's the same area of the brain that, which is responsible for metaphor and incidentally higher order abstract language and mathematics. And thirdly, synesthesia is unidirectional and follows a subject predicate form, much like our language follows a subject predicate form. And finally, there are many metaphorical expressions which themselves might suggest quite obviously synesthetic bearings. So what do I mean by this? You might consider the following. That was a sour experience. It's a bright, crisp smell. She's sharp, blunt, hardened, softening, so tactile experiences. This music is flat and odorless. His personality is colorful, and so on. So although synesthetic metaphors are, again, only one sort of metaphor among others, the tantalizing suggestion remains. At least in some cases, for some people, metaphors might be perceptual, that is, literal. So we can see how this conflicts with the literal figurative bias in the humanities that we were talking about earlier. So here we might stop to contemplate a seemingly obvious insight that there are indeed very different experiences of the world between individual synesthetes, which highlights the important point that the worlds we share are not all perfectly equal. That the world we experience is not reducible to an ideal computational system of meaning, since it is always subject to change in individual consciousness. And consciousness has a certain amount of variation in terms of what it associates with what. So the argument I want to put forward to the humanities, based on the synesthesia hypothesis, is that meta metaphor does many things, but one of the things it does is express 
that one might wish to uncover previously undisclosed connections, and at least sometimes these connections might even have perceptual significance. So in Kantian terms, we might consider this as something like the hypothetical synthetic a posteriori. If you know what that means, then I hope it keeps you up at night, and if you don't, just don't worry about it. Um, so I started this talk by pointing to some misconceptions of metaphor, and now I want to leave you with two quotes that touch on the significance of the connection between metaphor and synesthesia. The first quote shows the failure of the common philosophical understanding of metaphor to do justice to our sublated or peripheral perceptions, and the second describes a notion of the poet's task. This first quote I find very interesting. It's Ludwig Wittgenstein um, from the Philosophical Investigations, and he's really grappling with the distinction that we've been talking about. He says, if I say for me the vowel E is yellow, I do not mean yellow in a metaphorical sense, for I could not express what I want to say in any other way than by means of the idea yellow. The second is T.S. Eliot from his essay, The Metaphysical Poets. He writes, when a poet's mind is perfectly equipped for its work, it is constantly amalgamating disparate experience. The ordinary man's experience is chaotic, irregular, fragmentary. The latter falls in love or reads Spinoza, and these two experiences have nothing to do with each other, or with the noise of the typewriter, or the smell of cooking in the mind of the poet. These experiences are always forming new holes. So I hope that perhaps I've convinced you to readdress yourself to understanding conceptual blending, and that this line of inquiry might embolden you to take your own unique creative perspective a little more seriously. Thank you. <laughs>